Welcome to P Talks Africa, the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association's podcast. In this series, industry leaders will share their views on the asset class in the continent and discuss latest trends covering fundraising, deal making, value creation, and exits across private equity, credit, and venture capital. In this episode, Hurley Dudley, Managing Director, Funding Partner, and Co Chief Executive Officer at Emerging Capital Partners. Aisi Makinani, Chief Executive Officer at Fantasy Capital, Kola Ola, Partner at Leadbog Investments, and Carlos Reyes, Principal at IFC Asset Management Corporation, examine the pathways to liquidity in Africa, the opportunities, and the bottlenecks when exiting investments. This session recorded at the 16th Annual Conference in Nairobi in April 2019 is moderated by Jeffrey Burgess, Partner at Doublewell Apprentice. My name is Jeff Burgess. I'm an M&A partner at Double Boys in Plimpton in London. I'm coordinating our Africa practice and do a lot of work in this part of the world, including in Kenya. And I'll introduce first my uh, co-panelists and uh, give some introductory remarks, and, and then we'll get started. So to my right is uh, Hurley Dottie, who is the managing director, founding partner, and co-CEO of Emerging Capital Partners. Uh, Hurley's been with his firm for almost 20 years and been in the financial services business for 30 years. One of two economists on our panel, we have two economists and two engineers. We'll see how that works out. Um, to his right is Karima Ola, who is a partner with LeapFrog Investments. Um, Karima has been with Le- LeapFrog for quite a while and before that with the African Development Corporation. She also has uh, a broad finance background and is an engineer or by training. Um, Karima also showed up on Bloomberg's recent uh, Africa Women to Watch, so she's a, a star in this, in this community. Uh, to her right is Carlos Reyes, a principal with the IFC. Um, Carlos has uh, been working with the IFC for a while and provides a current perspective on other emerging markets, which I think is great to have on this panel, in addition to working on uh, energy and natural resource investments across Africa and doing other investments in Africa. He's involved in uh, Latin American and, and um, specifically the Mexican fund that IFC runs. And finally, uh, to his right is Aishi Mercatiani uh, with Fanisi Capital. He's the CEO and managing partner. Um, and he has the accolade of being one of the top 15 CEOs in East Africa, according to the bio here, uh, as, as voted uh, in the annual P- PwC National Media Group survey. And he's had that for three years in a row, which is great. And Aisi is a engineer by training as well. So thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, in terms of the exit scenario generally, in Africa, it's tough to find a good com- company once you have a good company, the proposition is it's easy to exit. But looking at exit volumes over the last few years, the exit activity has been relatively constant. In fact, by number, uh, exits went down slightly in 2018. Um, by volume, we don't have those numbers, but I do think that you'll see the volume activity be roughly the same. The, uh, the two trends in the last couple of years that I find interesting are that the uh, amount of sales to secondary buyers, that is a fund selling to another fund, has slowly increased uh, 34, 35, 37% in the last three years. And trade buyers are back. They, they, they were not as prevalent in the exit market in 2017, but um, are moving back toward their historic level of about 50%. Um, the IPO and capital markets method of exit has, has 
continue to be not so popular uh, with, with fewer exits, but IPO exits by PE-backed companies are an important part of the African capital market story. So although it's not a big part of exits, it's a big part of that market. Geographically, um, in the last year, South Africa continues to have the highest level of exit activity, which is no surprise. It's the most mature PE market. But North African exits were way up, and West African exits were way down for reasons that we can maybe discuss. And in terms of sectors, industrial companies and consumer companies continue to hold about a third of the market together. So those are the most popular PE kinds of companies that are being sold. So Hurley, why don't I pose the first question to you? Today, generally, on a macro level, what do you find is driving exits for Africa-focused funds, and what headwinds do you see coming? Okay, I guess I'll comment first uh, on the secondaries. Uh, that has been an increasingly important uh, area uh, for exits. That was really driven by uh, increase in fundraising, particularly good fundraising by African private equity firms in 2014 uh, and 2015. A lot of that money then went into buy uh, uh, good assets that other uh, uh, PE firms were holding. Um, African uh, fundraising is down a little bit in 17 and 18. I think you'll start to see that uh, uh, roll through into those numbers over the next couple of years. That secondary number probably goes down a little bit. In terms of strategics, not uh, there's reasonable interest uh, in, from strategics. Uh, I'd break that into... Uh, uh, African strategics looking to expand, that's been pretty steady, and I think that's going to continue. In terms of international strategics, probably a little less interest is a little less sort of Africa rising uh, story than there had been a few years ago, uh, and most of that's focused uh, on, I'd say, the bigger markets uh, now where, where we're seeing that. Um, in terms of IPOs, I think that probably is going to inch up here. Um, uh, we have seen uh, uh, some interest, uh, increased interest, uh, uh, ECP, we just uh, uh, had a uh, actually a very good exit uh, by IPO on, on the uh, Abidjan Regional Exchange, uh, the largest uh, uh, IPO that's ever been done there. Um, and I think that really is showing that there is good liquidity uh, there. And I think just the buildup of the uh, local uh, industries, the uh, pension funds and insurance companies is increasing the demand there. There haven't been many uh, IPOs, so I think you're going to see more of that. Uh, international IPOs, there's certainly uh, a number of companies uh, that have the size that have teed up for that, uh, uh, particularly the cell phone uh, uh, tower uh, industry, uh, but some other industries as well, and I think you will see that. Uh, uh, if you look at the pie of where the uh, exits are, that's probably going to increase in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think anecdotally, we've, we've heard of uh, some exits on the capital markets that have slowed down for one reason or the other. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, there's potentially a, a built up pipeline of companies big enough to take advantage of a capital markets exit. Um, Kareem, I'd be interested in your perspective or really any of the other panelists on sort of where, what the macro trends are, um, how secondaries are looking, whether you agree with Hurley that maybe it'll be a little bit of a slowdown coming up. So, I mean, I think from our perspective, um, it is, you know, whether they are slowing, I think there is definitely, an, on the Africa side, there is definitely a slowdown, and I think that's linked to um, the macro picture um, that Hurley um, spoke about. But um, I do think that if you're investing in, yeah, it, you know, it, so what that does impact is, you know, the, um, the lifetime of your investment. But I think if you've invested in, you know, um, 
long-term trends that still continue to deliver on the cash flow side. It's just a matter of um, being able to bring along your LPs in terms of the exit. And also, clearly, um, you also need to have a life, a fund life that then also accommodates that. I think given the 10 plus two model, it's sometimes some of them have no choice, no choice. And so that then does create something of a difficulty for certain funds. So I think finding a solution to that will be kind of key. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. And, and I think when we talk about macro, it's very easy to, to get bogged down into Africa as a single country versus trying to disaggregate the macro trends by uh, the different economies. And obviously, the three largest economies in the continent have been significantly impacted by the commodity downturn. So you're talking about Nigeria, you're talking about Angola, you're talking about South Africa, which together account for 50%. But surprisingly, when we compare it to other countries in, in the portfolio of operations of IFC, at least six of the fastest 10 growing economies in the world happen to be in Africa. And some happen to be exactly here in East Africa. So we have Ethiopia, we have Rwanda, we have Kenya that are experiencing growth rates. They are two to three times those in developed markets. And uh, surprisingly, I was talking the other day with, with one of our senior economists, and when you look at uh, the GDP per capita of Kenya in 2017, it's exactly the same that Philippines had in 2007. It's hovering around $1,800 per capita, and there is this magic number around $2,000 per capita in which there is a substantial quantum limb in the consumption. So what we are seeing is an, an emerging consumer class that has a need for goods and services that simply not present and that creates the opportunity. So it, it is important and, and someone in, in private equity said, in as much as we invest in countries, we invest in companies. And those companies that can go through cycle, I think those are companies that eventually are gonna be the topic of this panel. They're gonna be good companies to exit. I think, uh on, uh, on our part, we're seeing a lot of uh, strategics. We very much invest in the SME space. We're getting the larger players who are looking to come into the space. Uh, we're getting the larger players who are looking to come into the space, who are uh, having discussions with us on the various investments that uh, we've made. Uh, and for them, it's very much growing their footprint across East Africa. Uh, if we've done the good job of uh, helping an entrepreneur build their business out uh, to the point where now they're institutional or they're close enough to institutional and they can now take big money, uh, you generally first and foremost get a strategic coming in, but we're also getting a lot of the bigger funds kind of lining up uh, to take any of our good assets. So that's, I think the, that will continue uh, in, the, in, the, in the future for us. Yeah. You know that's a, that's an excellent uh, segue into the questions that I that I actually had for you. Maybe you can say a few words about Finisti Capital, the size of your fund, the kind of investments you make, and then we can talk about how you exit those. Yeah, so we are a minority uh, investor, investing about five million dollars uh, ticket sizes across East Africa, but predominantly Kenya. We invest in healthcare. Uh, mostly hospitals, we invest in education schools, uh, and then we'll do uh, pharmacies, uh, chains, 
uh, and snack foods generally, a consumer uh, sector. Uh, we have uh, two funds. Uh, one is fully invested and we're now exiting. Uh, and the second one, we are now building out a pipeline uh, across East Africa. Uh, and generally, we'll take minority positions. We'll do a lot of phased investments, so we'll not make uh, our, our, we don't, uh, given the size of uh, investor or entrepreneurs we are backing, uh, we have found that giving them money in, you know, in, uh, in tranches and, and, and making the milestone very much driven by the entrepreneurs is, uh, works out for us. So that's how we've lined it up. Uh, and uh, we generally will try and leave a bit of uh, upside for the next person to come uh, and buy yeah, in it. We hope it's a strategic, uh, but we're also very much willing to do a secondary. So that, that experience is um, more representative by number of deals. I think in Africa, the, the number of PE investments that are minority investments greatly, it's much higher than the number of control investments. Although a lot of the sponsors that, that I chat with are having a greater emphasis on doing controlled investments because of some of the challenges in exiting. So you know, I'd, I'd be interested in maybe a little bit more detail about some of these milestones you look for, other strategies that you employ. To, to help with an exit of a minority stake? Yeah, so because we do minority investments, we, we have to spend an extraordinary amount of time doing due diligence on the, on the sponsor, um, because we're actually at the end of the day investing in the sponsor. And we've made, of course, mistakes where we invested in the company and learned afterwards actually that uh, we should have spent more time on the sponsor. Uh, so we do definitely invest, uh, do a lot of uh, extraordinary work to confirm that this guy actually knows what he's doing. We look at the track records. Uh, we, you know, we have to, you know, we have to get into their personal details, uh, and if we feel very comfortable about that. Then we will uh, tranche out our investment uh, in in a way that ensures that they have systems in place. Again, you will go to a lot of these guys. They're doing. You know, you know, five million, ten million dollars turnovers in snack foods, uh, but uh, they've never had a, a proper accounting system. Uh, they've never had a finance person. They run everything directly. So the first investment for us is to make sure that business is investable. We're getting reports on time. The next one, of course, is then to uh, invest in the growth because we generally invest in profitable companies that are looking for growth. Uh, but we, we want to make sure that they have the capacity to absorb our capital. Uh, and at the moment then when we are coming in on our third tranche is when we then start talking to other parties to see if in fact they would be interested uh, in taking it, uh, in, uh, that investment uh, with maybe 10 times what we've put into it and grow it to the next phase. And at that stage generally is when they can take a, a majority stake. So the next investor uh, it's more like you're going to take a controlling stake, but we need to be able to ensure we've incentivized uh, the sponsor or the entrepreneur to actually build it alongside with us uh, to the point where we both can exit. And of course, there are a few things one needs to do. Uh, we made a mistake of um, uh, buying out, uh, pay, paying out some money to an entrepreneur uh, one day, and uh, he took two years off. Uh, before he came back uh, to find out what was happening with the business. And of course, by the time he came back, we were beginning to think, how do we exit? Uh, and so we just don't do payouts. I mean, the few of the things we do is say, look, when, when we exit, it's when you can exit. And so you need to work with us to build a business so that the next guy actually can buy it 100% from us. 
Yeah. So that's just um, what we have to do in the on the smaller side of uh, investing, uh, where you're investing in a company that's been very much driven by a, a generally a very strong individual uh, who's done very well and succeeded again as all the odds. Uh, and now you're telling them to you know let go a little bit, build systems, processes, and trust other parties, and allow us to build a company that we can sell together uh, to somebody else for hopefully uh, quite a bit of more money than what we've put in. Yeah, I'd be interested in other people's experiences. Sometimes these minority sales situations can be very challenging. Sometimes they're easy. Um, Earlier, you want to speak about some of your, I know you're, you're focusing mostly on patrol. No, we have a mix. Uh, we've got uh, 45 exits, I guess, uh, uh, so far uh, uh, in our experience. Uh, yeah, clearly uh, minority deals tend to be a little bit uh, harder to get out of. Uh, you really have to make sure you have a, a meeting of the minds uh, on how you're going to do that. Um, uh, uh, you know, you can have drag along rights, things like that. Uh, you'll find that they're in practice actually pretty hard to uh, uh, enforce. It's good to have, you know, what we call nuisance value, um, uh, you know, uh, just to make sure people uh, are uh, focused on, on those type of exits. Uh, but, you know, certainly a, uh, a meeting of the minds in terms of we're going to be in a, min, a minority position, but let's build this thing so that we both sell the whole uh, thing to somebody else uh, is, uh, is really important. And it's much harder in a business where it's clear that the person doesn't want to sell eventually. And that's one of the differences between here and, you know, say the U.S. market. Uh, you know, U.S. entrepreneurs tend to, you know, see the big payday as an IPO or a sale to somebody. Um, and that's starting to get uh, here as you're starting to get... Uh, uh, both younger entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs with more uh, exposure to that model. Um, and, you know, that's certainly uh, easier to work with someone who's driving toward that, uh, that big payday with you and, uh, who's, than someone who's trying to keep it within their family or, you know, th these type of things. Yeah, so similar to, to what my fellow panelists are, I mean, so we... We started investing in the continent in March of 2010. We have done about 20 investments, and we have done 11 exits. And within those 11 exits, we have seen everything from from very straightforward type of um, exits in which it is a number of minority investors. So sometimes we are with other private equity funds, and we have created the deal together, so it's easier to sell. In some other times, it's talking with, with the sponsors. And, and I think, to me, the, the exit process starts the day after we invest. We start thinking every day how we're going to exit. And we start doing and um, planting the, the seed of that investment in the entrepreneurs or in the sponsor. And for us, the way we go about it is we focus on, on three things. Largely, one, I think it's been said already, is the reporting. Quite often you go and, and you find either they follow local accounting rules or, or accounting rules are frankly speaking not either local, not international, they are like uh, alien. And therefore what we try is to create a standard. For us the standard is IFRS. And, and it's quite painful sometimes to go through that process because it implies bringing external advisors with the cost and so on. The second, corporate governance. 
uh, it's very important for us to have a, a good corporate governance process which is gonna, is gonna help no matter what in the exit that you decide to do, whether it's an IPO or sale to a strategic. Having properly uh, run boards, and the boards are not a happy hour. I remember I was in a board in which I was a director and I asked questions and the chairman of the board at the time was the, the main uh, sponsor, the entrepreneur said, well, this, the board is not a forum to ask questions. And I was like, okay, if it's not the forum, where is it? So we needed to come up with a protocol in which we have a board meeting without the sponsor, and when he came, it was a happy hour. So it's a, it's a little bit also work with the idiosyncrasies of the sponsor, because you don't want to force change from day one and create that sort of friction. And the other thing that we are, quite focusing, in addition to doing the due diligence, uh, we focus on the bench. And, and there is an analogy uh, that someone mentioned to me. Michael Jordan never won an NBA ring when he was scoring the maximum amount of points. He, he got the NBA rings when he got the Scottie Pippen, Orange Grant, and other players to come. So we look for the bench. Who, if the entrepreneur tomorrow takes an airplane and goes down, who can step into? And for us, that sort of succession plan is quite important. And we have seen it to pay dividends when you go to a strategic and you present that entire thing, the entire package together. Quite often, the entrepreneur at the time doesn't want to sell. And therefore, we had that sort of nuisance value. So we have put to the sponsor. I will tend to agree with hardly a drug. You can. We spend an incredible amount of money on lawyers to create drugs that are like beautiful. If the sponsor says no and you have to go to local court to, to enforce it, it's gonna, you can be there for a while. So I think it's more the nuisance value, but you need to incentivize the sponsor to uh, give you a good exit, particularly when even the sponsor doesn't want to exit. So those are for us the, the sort of the things that we look in and how we try to think about it. Carrot and stick. You, you answered one of my other questions, which is uh, how important are the legal documents? Uh, you know, when, when our clients are exiting, I think um, I've never seen anybody follow the exit procedure in the document. They started to, and sometimes they even litigated what it meant, but then they ended up doing something else that worked for everybody. Mm -hmm. But getting getting those uh, alignments right is important. Um, I'm I'm very interested in something that you you said, uh, Hurley. The the idea that you can go in with a a, a family-owned company or or a, a businessman-owned company and take a minority stake and get ready for everybody to sell, mm -hmm. and, and where the the buyer is taking control is something that you've been able to convince your 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 partners to do. And and you said the same thing. In, in my experience in India, the families have had businesses for so long mm. that there is such a strong incentive to keep the business in the family that a lot of the sales of minority stakes are to somebody who buys that minority stake and then mm. comes in to take the company to the next level, maybe cashing out the family a little bit at the time. Um, it sounds like neither of you have had experiences like that. Well, we certainly have had experiences like that, and you know, because of the difficulty of it, it, it is easier. One thing here, you tend to the businesses that private equity invests in have been newer businesses, uh, newer business models, uh, cell phones, uh, cell phone towers, 
data centers, things like that, not something that's been manufacturing, you know, things for three generations uh, and, you know, the person's not going to sell his grandfather's business uh, type of thing. So uh, the same really with the consumer products uh, businesses as well. Uh, uh, we uh, invested in Nairobi Java House uh, uh, out of here. Uh, once again, relatively new business, um, you know, able to expand it quickly and, you know, had the ability to then sell that. Uh, we then have just recently invested in Art Cafe here in, the, in this market as well. Uh, similar type of thing where they, you know, the entrepreneur is, uh, you know, interested in building it and then, uh, and, and then selling it. Uh, you know, it is certainly something you need to look into if it's a real family business. Even in the family businesses, often the older generation might have built it. The younger generation, you know, they might have gone to Wharton or something and, you know, fully understand, hey, you know, this would be a lot more valuable if we got it up to international standards and sold it to somebody. Um, and then we can take a huge amount of money and do whatever we want with it. Um, and, you know, you, you can see that uh, difference and that can be an interesting time as well to come into a, uh, uh, to come into a company. So more, more serial entrepreneurs potentially in the second generation. Mm, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, Karima, any observations on minority exits or minority investments being exited? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, my fellow colleagues have, um, uh, have said most of it. So um, I think when it comes to minorities, yeah, the legals, uh, um, from my experience, from our experience, um, the legals, um, especially on the drugs experience that we've had, but it, you know, you don't ever compromise on those because even uh, as Hurley said, I think it will help. It will help in terms of um, at least getting them, to, getting a, sp um, a sponsor. Um, to be co cooperative. So we had a similar um, experience in, um, in in Kenya, um, where um, we had a drag. We also had a put, um, and the sponsor didn't have the money for the put, but wasn't ready to be dragged. <laughs> but um, essentially, you know, at least we found a buyer for that business, and it did mean that management had to spend a, you know an inordinate amount of time to actually bring. That and it was a strategic to bring the strategic, um, you know, um, up, you know, to bring the strategic into the business, and that was that ended up being um, the incentive for that sponsor to cooperate and make that happen, and it was a good exit for us in the end. Um, and so, and it was actually also a good a good time in the cycle. So, my, yeah, I would say the legals are a minimum, um, and there's nothing just to sort of be. Um, uh, to sort of enable you to manage the exit better at the end. Um, we also, I mean, like everyone else, I mean, I think we 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 think about the exit right at the beginning. Often, you know, when we sit down with uh, alongside uh, management or owners, it's about trying to sort of understand what their dreams are for the future. So, if it's you know a family business, really trying to understand what they want to do. Um, so that you know, and so that and so that we basically align our ability to exit with you know what they want to be able to do uh, off the, often, and sometimes that might be getting a strategic or a another financial buyer who's actually aligned with you know either because they're a sector specialist or they've got other businesses in a portfolio. So where we've sold to, um, where we have sold to. Um, Financial buyers, we've sometimes we will make sure we will actually get the management of the company to actually have a say in who they prefer if we get to a shortlist. And sometimes that would be based on the fact that based on the portfolio of this particular financial buyer, we think we're going to get better. And, and 
we've had instances where the best price wasn't necessarily, you know, that the, the, the person who had the best price wasn't necessarily the preferred partner of um, the sponsors. And, you know, we've had to make a, a small compromise, but a small compromise in pricing in order to make sure that everyone's aligned. I mean, that must be a real challenge trying to navigate <laughs> yeah. building trust so that the highest bidder is the one who's most trustworthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a skill that uh, the PE professionals definitely have. Um, Carlos, you, you touched on some of the things that you do at IFC, AMC mm -hmm. to help build good businesses and be ready for exit. I'd like to hear a little bit more about those, but, but beforehand, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure everybody here understands how IMC, how IFC, AMC, the asset management mm -hmm. uh, part of it, ch handles money and, and investments alongside IFC. So you might want to describe a little bit about your, your group. Yeah, sure, Jeffrey. So the IFC asset management company is a subsidiary of IFC, and we were created in 2009 for the purposes of managing third-party money in a co-investment format with the IFC, which effectively what it means for uh, each equity project that the IFC does, direct equity project, we have the right, not the obligation, to co-invest a portion of that equity ticket with the IFC. So the idea was to mobilize more capital into emerging markets. The genesis of AMC was post-financial crisis in 2009, where Obviously, the, the flow of capital to emerging markets uh, was not as large as the needs that those emerging markets had. And also, the second element that came into play was the view, particularly from large pools of capital, that going into emerging markets was providing at the time on a risk-adjusted basis, a better return. And we all have to remember that back in 2009, certain countries, particularly in Southern Europe, were experiencing levels of risk and that were similar to what some of the emerging markets had. So fast forward uh, to 2019, we are now 10 years in our existence. We managed about $10 billion of asset under management. We have 59 LPs that have some of the largest sovereign wealth funds, DFIs, pension funds in that co-investment format. We have 13 funds, out of which the majority are direct equity, but we have two fund of funds. We have two uh, debt funds, one of them very specialized that goes towards provide, it's called the Woman Entrepreneurs Fund that goes towards providing capital to financial institutions, intermediaries that they themselves lend to businesses that are run, led, or whose board has a significant amount of women. Uh, so those are the, the sort of the, the, the type of funds we have. In Africa over the last, since March of uh, 2010, we have uh, committed about $900 million, invested about 850, and there's been five funds that have been really focusing on, on Africa from either a sector approach or from a country approach. We are now in the process of thinking about the next family of funds, specifically focused on Africa. So those are, will be ones that the sole purpose will be investing in businesses across the continent, still in a minority format. But the idea that AMC has is mobilize the capital and leverage IFC. And when we talk about leveraging IFC, is the platform that we have 
which is a, is a very is, is a platform that we believe is 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 a lead in, leader in the continent, uh, together obviously with the African Development Bank. So we have about 20 offices, we have 180 investment professionals, and then we can draw our industry specialists. And those are the ones that we leverage quite a bit on those minority investors, because when we make the minority investments, because when we talk to these entrepreneurs, sponsors, it's very important for them to see what's the value. And generally speaking, when they think of IFC, or sometimes DFIs in general, they see us as quite, cumbersome. So we need to be able to convey that we can move in a very nimble manner and the way we do it often is via our industry specialists, via seats in the board. So we try to draw on, on our past network of, of folks that we can put in the board. And also the way we go about it in terms of building the relationships is, is a journey. So often we start with that, given that IFC can provide that. So the initial relationship might be with a, with a party via trade finance loan or working capital loan for three months or a year. Then we go into a debt product. And then finally, that's when there's trust being developed. Uh, uh, that's when we, we move to, towards that sort of equity project. So we, we've been in the continent for since pretty much uh, independence, and, and that gives us an, a name. Uh, and, and as I said, we are very careful in the relationships and how we go and build in those relationships. And, and specifically on the, in, in the exit arrangement, you're a fund, you, you have to exit your direct mm -hmm. investments. So yeah. IFC has a different time horizon, potentially, <laughs> shorter or longer. So yeah. your role with the exits must be significantly more intense than what IFC is doing. That, that, that's correct. And, and although the, the way I describe it, we are together. So when we go to the sponsor, the sponsor gets two for one. They don't see much of a difference between IFC and IFC as a management company. Obviously, the advantage that we have and the role that we play is doing the portfolio. The model that we follow is similar to the model of all the private equities in this panel. Whoever does the investment has to live with investment. So there is a continuity and that helps IFC because as any other DFI, they have perhaps a more rotation in terms of the people managing the investment. And then you're absolutely correct, Jeffrey, at the exit, there might be circumstances in which we decide to exit and the IFC remains. Having said that, surprisingly, despite the IFC being a, a balanced investor and investing from their own account, the average tenure matches quite well what you will imagine is a private equity fund, so in the four to six years. So uh, there's been probably in the 11 exits that we have done, probably there's only been two in which we exited and the IFC remained. And, and again, that's... That's, uh, that's just the way it's worked out. Yeah. Basically. Right. Thank you. Um, Karima, um, let's... let's turn to LeapFrog strategy. So LeapFrog itself is known as an impact investor, um, mainly focused on financial services, such as insurance and, and healthcare. How does that strategy parlay to your exit activity? 
Thank you. Um, impact investing is a broad church, so we should very quickly say that our strategy is to have a non-concessionary return, so it's market return. Um, however, we do deliver impact, and the way that we do, you know, the way that we can deliver impact is two ways. Um, one is clearly, um, you know, sort of secondary impact, which is you know, a minimum, which is on, you know, ESG, um, and in particular for financial services, it tends to be more the um, social and the governance. And you know, uh, um, Carlos talked extensively about corporate governance, so I shan't leave that. Um, in, in addition to that, I think protection of consumers is also another one. And then our, prim our primary impact is that we invest in companies, um, or we invest alongside companies that are producing goods and services um, for the emerging consumer. Carlos, again, thank you. You talked through the emergence of that emerging consumer, um, who we see they represent about 65% of the population on average across Africa. And essentially, they are you know, largely underserved, because well, you know, in, especially in our sectors, so whether it's financial services or access to healthcare, but that extends to consumer goods, education, um, energy. Um, and so our strategy is to focus mainly on the underserved. So what that means is that there is a very low, you've got a very low penetration um, in a sector where there is significant demand um, and not enough, not enough supply. So that's certainly able um, and certainly um, aids us um, um, on the commercial on the commercial line. In addition to that, because of the low penetration and financial services in particular, you also um, you you know the, the regulation um, is such that we basically also have that we're basically investing in sectors where there is. Um, uh, catalytic regulation. So to give you an example, um, we, if you think about um, financial exclusion of, um, in, in, in Africa or lack of insurance in Africa, if, and it, you know, when most emerging consumers, you know, they, you know, we have seen an a significant boost in income, However, it's still, you know, it is, it is still at that. So while people have left poverty, um, they're still at a level where, whenever there is a catastrophic event in the family, somebody dies, you know, uh, you know, children need to go to, yeah, well, um, ch um, children. There's an expected need for um, education costs if there is if if, if if a family loses an income earner. Essentially, that could basically take um, that that could take people back into poverty again. So the need for insurance means that they actually, it is the government who will actually bear. Who, who will actually bear that brunt. And so what we're seeing is that across our markets, we have regulation that in the last few years, um, or the last decade or so, we've actually seen um, the introduction of mandatory, you know, mandatory life insurance um, for, um, for corporates who, 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 who employ more than three employees. We've seen mandatory pensions for any corporates that, you know, also um, more than three employees. We've all, you know, and part, and a number of companies are also looking at health insurance because if, 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 if corporates don't provide it, then clearly the government will have to also bear the brunt. So what we're seeing is regulation that's actually starting to move, that's actually starting to bring about um, a number of business models um, that we are that we are now investing in. So, to address your question um, directly, the way that we see that as influence and ex exits are twofold. One, when we look at exits, we we want to make it as broad as possible. So, you know, whether it's a strategic or a, in, in this order, strategic, secondary, or um, um, or, or an IPO. 
And so we build a business so that we um, so that we can it can be when we look at the beginning we're looking at building a business so that it is flexibly um, um, attractive to any of the uh, to any, for any of those exits. But in addition to that, because we're basically at the beginning of what we see as a long term trend um, in market like ours, um, we're also you know, it also means that we also you know um, when we think about the financial returns and the forecast, it's, there's a long it's got a long way to run. So there are also some natural, you know, so in Africa, where, you know, we have a median age of 18, we have a lot of insurance strategics or pension fund strategics who are global, who are thinking about the fact that they're in their main markets, they have an aging consumer. So the working, the working classes of the future are going to be in Africa and in Asia. Um, um, that, so they, you know, we're sort of seeing that move where we're seeing a number of um, institutional strategics who are already starting to move into those markets. So the way in which we, so, you know, the, the way in which um, our strategy helps us on exit is one, you know, if you're in a market where we've invested for three, if you're in a market where you've got catalytic regulation, low penetration, and then you've also seen a number of um, business models that are working pro sustainably profitably. If we invest and we support some of those, um, and we pr promote those um, sponsors, we will be in a position where when we're looking to sell in three to five or three to seven years time, there's still a long way to run. For, so it's equal, so it's still attractive for a financial buyer to still take it on, so they can still take advantage of that. Or we basically, for the bolder of the um, strategics who are basically starting early, um, they will come in, and we've and we've seen that play out with a number of exits. Um, you know, we, you know, a number of exits that we that we um, that we had in Ghana, we had an exit to um, a UK a UK um, PLC insurer um, who were basically entering Africa for the first time, and they entered through Ghana. Um, in Kenya, we also had a similar exit to um, a Swiss reinsurer, um, and I think, you know, and, and, and again, they're thinking of Africa. Um, as sort of as a future when it comes to financial services, based on both the supporting regulatory uh, um, environment and some of the business models that already exist. So that, that's how strategy plays into your your exiting activity. What, how about the business cycle generally? Where where does where does that fit in? And I'm gonna I think this this is a question for everybody really. Yeah. What, what, what do you think about? Selling when the currency's down, when the business cycle's down, sell it early if it's up. How do you view that generally? Yeah. Leapfrog invests across Africa and Asia. So I actually, and we have one IC despite the fact that I only, I, I'm responsible for Africa only. And what I see is that when we look at the business cycle, um, it's a very, you know, for Africa, it's a, certainly a, it's a tougher play. You know, we've got cut, we, you know, currency risk, regulation risk. So some of the things I, one of which I cited earlier, is, 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 is as an advantage, but it can also be seen as a risk. So on the, um, so as a result of that, one of the things we try to do is actually really try and look at where we think, um, you know, the cycle can also play play for us. I mean the. You know, Africa private equity is actually a relatively young asset class, and so when we think, I was talking about this earlier on with Hurley, um, and Hurley is one of, represents one of the earlier, um, early, um, all the earlier entrants into the market. And so, in, in the in, in the in terms of a cycle, you could you could argue that we're still you know riding. Um, we're still sort of riding, um, you know. We're sort of at the end of at, at the end of one long cycle. So, what we have done in the past is, we, you know, even though we basically have had 
um, where we've basically, you know, we've had an investment horizon to build a business, often one that's kind of new in the business, where we've seen a cycle, you know, either the business cycle or certain trends work in our favor, we've taken advantage of them. And so I would say we was, you know, um, you know, partly our business acumen, partly luck that we, uh, you know, on our first two exits, because that, that we, what we saw was a time when we saw um, the international strategics looking to Africa, and it was at a time when Africa was still on its rise, on its resilient path. It was post 2007, post 2008. Um, crisis and Africa had proved resilient. Um, it had a number of um, tailwinds. And so at that point, we, in a, we were in, an, in a, a, there was a great opportunity for us to be able to sell because we knew that we, we had certain strategies who were interested in the market. Did we have a debate internally about whether you know, there was significantly more, shouldn't we wait? Can we get more later on? We did. But in the end, we decided that we should also take advantage of the trends and where we are in the cycle to do those two exits. And they played in our favor. Yeah, a, a few maybe brief comments on this topic, and then we'll we'll open it up for questions because I'm noticing we've got five minutes. Left. I would say, yeah, uh, you know, we probably look at the economic cycle less. We certainly look at the election cycle. Um, uh, you know, this year, you know, you clearly had Nigeria. It's going to be very hard to do a exit two months before the Nigerian election. Uh, Algeria, uh, same thing. You know, anything you had in Algeria, you like to have sold it last year, or you won't be, you won't have that window until next year. So I'd say that's probably more important. IPOs as well. Uh, you really have a sense that you've only got kind of two windows when you have the audited financials and all your books in. in. So a lot of them, you know, if you either do it in September, or you're going to do it in, in, the, in the next May or say, and you know, you just try to guess. Can we get everything uh, ready for, for which one? Um, but in general, uh, we don't want to spend a whole lot of time trying to guess which way uh, the whole world economy is going. We don't think we're particularly good at that. Uh, you know, you've got a company that's ready and has a good, uh, uh, you know, there's a, a buyer with a serious offer, uh, you know, you really should consider uh, uh, selling uh, at that point. You know. Yeah, echo a little bit what everyone, everyone has said. I think obviously we are in the market, no matter what, via IFC, AMC, we tend to look at the timing a little bit more, more sort of rigidly and more systematically. And again, sometimes it's following the signs. We had an insurance business uh, that we were invested and, and then back in early 2015, we saw the signs, there was a transaction in which um, AXA bought Mansar for what we thought it was a very healthy price to earnings over 25 times. All Mutual came into, into Kenya, um, did uh, uh, purchase, and, and I think we were like having those similar debates, is, is now the time to exit or not? And, and you have to be very systematic. If you try to get the last penny off the table, sometimes you lose the pound. So in that respect, immediately we, we got together, we, we decided to go for a strategic, we put everything, and I would say, I always people, and we, we sold the business and we had a very healthy return and it's one of our best performing and, and eventually the parties that they stay sold two years later for the same price. So in terms of IRR, they, they got a lower IRR. And, and to your point, when you say, was it luck? Oh, I mean, I, I always remember when, what uh, 
what's uh, someone told me that uh, whenever they asked Napoleon, what's the quality that you want in your generals? And he said, I want them lucky. So uh, to a certain extent, you always have to be looking into the market constantly and, and see some of the signs. When it comes to elections, I agree with Harley, it's very difficult to, to sell. Conversely, it's a good time to buy. So if you see like a good business immediately before elections, people tend to be more amicable to structure things. So it's a combination, but constantly see the signs in the market. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think uh, adding to Harley's uh, list of issues, I think the other one in, in agriculturally driven countries is drought. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and somehow you can't predict when it will happen, but whenever you have drought, then it affects the whole economy and that affects what's happening with liquidity and, uh, and, yeah. and how the businesses are performing. Uh, and uh, politicians start blaming it for everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is another one one needs to add to along with, polit- with, uh, with politics and election cycles. Um, I think f- for us, we try and build our companies for an exit uh, to a strategic or a secondary. Uh, and as I said, I think our whole aim is to ensure we leave enough on the table. The mistake I think we've made more often than not is to try and get the last coin out. Uh, I think with a little bit of experience now, we're realizing that as soon as you can sell, just sell it and put it on record and, and show your realized returns. Uh, I think that's what I would, I would, uh, I would say is the mistake we've made in the past. But I think now we are getting into the cycle of the minute you get lack on your site, take advantage of it and move on. Great. Well, why don't I open it up for one or two questions from the floor. If you could just raise your hand, someone might bring you a microphone. Yes, please. Uh, Do you have a preferred route of exit? Yeah, thank you. Do you have a preferred uh, route of exit? And if not, how do you choose? The, the, the laws affected. I don't think I heard that uh, explanation during the debate. We don't have a preferred route of exit. Um, it, it, we try and leave it as flexible as possible, mainly because of all the all, all the issues cited. So you have to basically worry about the economic, the business cycle, political cycle, election, drought, and you have no idea when the, well, you know when the elections are coming, but droughts you can't, or, or um, devaluations are not always easy um, to basically, um, people who much, people who basically do it full time don't get it right. So what we try to do is, um, you know, manage a business or, or first of all, buy into business that are basic, that are um, that that are going to be somewhat um, resilient during some of those periods. So, and that's what I was saying earlier on is that when you have when you have low penetration in a market, what you see is that you, you the growth is significant. So, whilst you might you know you know whilst the economy or the or the currency might go against you, the significant growth in EBITDA will offset some of that, and so that also helps you. And that, in turn, makes it easy. You know, it just means that there's always something there for you. But you know, in terms of, so you don't root. You, well, we don't, I should say. I'll leave it to my colleagues as we see. We just leave it as flexible as possible, because we're never aware whether it's going to be a time for strategics looking in our markets, or whether um, 
But the key thing there is um, what Ayisi said, which is to leave something on the table, which again, if you're in a market that's growing significantly, um, even if it ends up being a secondary, another financial buyer can see sort of another five years so that they can in turn deliver it to a strategic later on. I was going to add, I mean, the preferred route is the route that's going to have some competition, um, that there's going to be some sort of an auction process. So that's going to be what you would like to do. And, you know, if you can do that, then, you know, you don't have to guess whether the strategics are paying more than the, uh, uh, the GPs that day. You'll just find it out. And uh, along that uh, route is, too, I mean, often, especially with the bigger companies, will run in parallel a IPO process. Um, and a uh, and a sale process, uh, kind of run the IPO process. The, the strategics then have to decide this is the moment they're going to buy it. If they don't do it now, it's going to be uh, public and very tough for them to buy. So that that's another uh, thing we're you know try to do in order to uh, both increase our options and increase the uh, the competitive uh, attention when when we get a sale. We. We will build for sell to a strategic, but make it available for GPs. So we, we have to have in mind who is going to buy this, uh, given the size of investments we make. Uh, what are they going to look for? And we focus on that, because uh, the more likely uh, backup for us. And then when the GPs are available, we also uh, make, it, make the company available to them. No, similarly uh, with other panelists, I mean, and, and then for us, another element that we focus quite a bit is the time to completion. Once there is execution, we try to move from execution to completion as fast as possible because having a contract signed means nothing for us is when the money hits the LP's account. That's, that's what we look at. And in our markets, that can be an extended amount of time, especially <laughs> if you're waiting for regulatory approval. Uh, any other questions? Okay, this will be our last one over here. Thank you. Uh, so, so there's been a lot of talk about if you find a buyer, you sell, regardless of the returns. Uh, but my question is, how do you balance between getting the right MOC, the right IRR, and carry for your team to keep them motivated? Um, it, the regardless of return, certainly doesn't apply for us, <laughs> because your question, you know, is that we do need to make sure that there is carry and the re, and our and we promise our LPs return. So we aim to maximise returns. However, one of the things that we have is that we have limited life funds, and we do have a timetable on exits. Um, so it is a balance. Um, so we do need to make sure that we are. Um, the, the thing is that we want to, you know, the, if I'm to summarize what we all just said before, it's that if you had to, you, we know that strategics pay more because they have a lower cost of capital and they don't have an, the investment horizon of other financial buyers. Um, and so essentially, but if there is, but if, you've, if you're in a very exciting industry, there are situations where financial buyers will pay more, which is where Hurley's point about you know, a competitive process where you're actually seeing pricing on all sides. But ultimately, returns are at the heart, maximizing the returns in the, time, in the, in the timetable or the scheduled time that you have to sell is key. Great. Well, I think we'll end there. Uh, if you would join me in thanking our panelists, it was a great discussion. Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. To find out more about the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, please visit avca-africa.org.